Twas Brillig and the Slithy Toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All Mimsy Ooh. were the boar groves and the momraths outgrade. I'm impressed. I don't know about you. And it looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks pretty white. What is that? That's uh, the Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. From Alice in Wonderland. Oh. Welcome to episode... Five? This is episode five. We've discussed why it's episode five, and it yes. is episode five. So. Mm-hmm. Episode five, um, and Colin, what are we going to talk about? On this episode, it's been a minute. We yes. haven't recorded an episode That's in a while. my fault. I'm sorry. Well, guys. I think it's all of our faults. Um, okay. So, um, the coronavirus happened. Yes. Um, is happening. By the way, we just want you guys all to know the, the steps that we are taking to protect you from the coronavirus. We have <laughs> sanitized. Yes, we have sanitized all of our mics. Um, we have also sanitized your earbuds. Mm. So you do not have to worry at all. You're fine. You are safe. <laughs> uh, so it's been a minute. We haven't recorded in a while. Um, but... Uh, but we're we're back at it, back at it again with those white vans, and uh, this week we have um, our friend and fellow church member Jeremy Schwinger Howdy. Uh, with us. And uh, so what uh, what we want to talk to you about um, we've we've discussed some of the basics like divine inspiration, why we believe scripture uh, is what it says it is, um, and why it's. Um, why it's trustworthy and why we can go to it for uh, for what we believe, um, and then we talked about the Lord's Supper, and then we talked about baptism and uh, some of the things that we might disagree with others in Christendom about mm-hmm. baptism. So uh, this week we uh, are going to talk to you about some eschatology. That uh, is correct. Yeah, Jeremy here is kind of our resident scholar on es- uh, eschatology so how long has your class on revelation been going on uh, i think we're getting close to two years it will be two years at the beginning of the summer but i do expect to finish before then because we're on the cusp of revelation 21 yeah man it's been it's been <clears throat> phenomenal it's it's funny because and maybe this is a good segue into what we're going to talk about but it's funny because for a long time um eschatology has been just at least in in my experience in life uh in the church just not like you don't really touch it that's for very specific scholars to deal with and it's not that important we're not going to talk about it Uh, but you take a much different stance that very much so yeah Yeah. Uh, i'm extremely well it's funny because i did i did um two years on genesis 1 through 11 which is the first third of human history and just packed into those 11 chapters and that is the absolute foundation, everything that you see in Scripture. Or, um, so, yeah, before, before doing Revelation, I actually spent two years doing Genesis chapters 1 through 11, um, the first, which covers the first third of human history. So massively important chapters because they're, they're foundational to all of Scripture. You know, like you, it's the seedbed of doctrine. Well, if Genesis is the foundation, Revelation is the capstone. Um, God is the master storyteller. And he doesn't leave any loose ends. And so I actually believe the strongest argument for the closure of the canon doesn't come from a verse somewhere in the New Testament, but from the the content of the book of Revelation, Mm. because it ties up everything that scripture has talked about in such a magnificent way. That's good. And and yet that book is is tremendously neglected. It's kind of like 
like you were talking about this attitude of Christians of you know eschatology. Let's um, it, it's divisive. Like why you know it's not as essential as other things. So let's let's not talk about it. Uh, how many people would go watch an excellent movie? And then leave in the last, you know, 15 minutes and be like, oh, that's not that important. No one would do that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but many Christians do the same thing with eschatology, that the end of the story, you know, all that matters is Jesus wins. At a, at a fundamental level, that is what matters most. But God spends a lot of his, if you want to call it airtime, <laughs> yeah. a lot of his broadcast time talking about eschatology. In fact, I think the statistic is that Jesus' second coming is mentioned once every, it's like 15 verses or in the New Testament. Wow. It's like very much on his mind. Um, eschatology is so important. It addresses an important part of the gospel because the gospel is not just about salvation now. It's about um, the ways in which that's going to be culminated at the time of the end. There's also just a biblical expectation that Christians will study eschatology. You, you'll see Paul see, say things like, don't you remember when I was with you, I used to talk about these things. And in that passage, he's talking about eschatology. Um, eschatology shows God's sovereignty and holiness in a, in a powerful and ultimate manner. Um, it's, uh, it's a necessary component of a complete Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And and also it's a gift of God to us to share as, you know, what he's going to do at the end with us. He, he um, it's kind of like how Jesus says, I share these things with you because you are my friends. Mm-hmm. Well, God has told us intimate details about what's going to happen at the time of the end. It's a gesture of his, his love to us. Um, as I already said, a large portion of scripture is devoted to this topic. Um, it guards us against being deceived. It keeps us from despairing. Um, and the book of Revelation uniquely contains uh, a, a statement, both at the beginning and the end of the book, that those who study it will be blessed. It's obviously something that God holds very dear to his heart and that we should hold uh, dear to ours. Um, so anyway, the the specific focus of the topic tonight is the millennial kingdom. Yeah. 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 Which, by the way, I'm not super into that name because I think I think it's an accurate name, but I think it's a name that has made it seem as if this is really just a discussion about what Revelation 20 teaches. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I've, I've even read people say almost verbatim uh, when uh, people try to teach certain views, especially premillennialism, of the millennium, um, they're really just drawing from one chapter of a very obscure book of the Bible, mm. which that statement is, is cringeworthy. Yeah. And the reason why is um, the millennium is a topic that is found throughout Scripture. Really, it has its roots in Genesis chapter 1, as a matter of fact, as I guess we'll talk a little bit about tonight. But um, I've actually done some statistical calculations on this thing, um, looked through the entire Bible, uh, looked at different lists of passages, and then checked them myself. So I guess it's only as good as my <laughs> my vetting. But I, Which, I was... Guys, you, let me tell you, can trust Jeremy Schwinger <laughs> on pretty much anything he tells you that he claims to be a fact. <laughs> so... <laughs> But, but I, yeah, I did try to, to investigate this as much as I could. Uh, I found that 316 chapters of the Bible are affected in some way by the topic of the millennium. Mm-hmm. And of those 316 chapters, 81 are complete chapters. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that is a hunk of text. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is a slab of text. Yeah. Um, and those are s- distributed throughout 51 different books of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, you know, both God. Old and not, New Testament. Not only is that a high number for just for eschatology's sake, but talking about the 
Millennium Kingdom. Yeah. That's a lot. That, yeah, this isn't even just eschatology. This is yeah, literally yeah. just Very what's affected by the millennium and what's and mm-hmm. what's affected by your view of Israel because that's that's bound into Man. it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Jeremy, ever since I really ever since like we became friends and we started talking about this and we would hang out and you can because when we met I was basically Amil, uh, almost leaning post mill, uh, with because I was reading a lot of reformed writings, you know, things of that, things of that nature. But um, I was very much not there. But ever since we've been talking, now it's like every time, especially when I read the prophets, mm-hmm. I cannot help mm. but see the millennial kingdom. Mm. It's the only thing that makes sense of the prophets. Mm-hmm. Especially the more like obscure texts. Well, at least they were obscure about um, like the nations flocking to Jerusalem yep. and things <clears throat> like that. Man, you, I like, I cannot help but see it now. Yeah, and maybe this will be a good, uh, good thing to throw in before because we're going to talk about why we should believe in a literal kingdom millennial kingdom. yeah a future, future future earthly kingdom. earthly kingdom and so uh just quickly if you could kind of um tell us what the other two colin uh reference them amillennial and postmillennial those are the other okay yeah. two leading views of, of... And, and maybe a nod to dispensationalism mm. maybe because <laughs> that's a form of pre-mill yeah yeah so <clears throat> um the, I'll, I'll actually finish what I was saying earlier about why I think the, the title Millennial Kingdom is oh, unfortunate. Yes, yes, my bad. Um, yes. But we are stuck with it, so we will use it. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> the, reason, the reason I think that it's unfortunate is because it fixates on uh, Revelation 20 as really being the only passage that talks about that. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the, the duration of the kingdom is one of the least important aspects. I think that we can conclusively say how long it is, and we'll talk about why mm-hmm. that is later on. But... Um, I prefer to call it the messianic kingdom mm. because it is the it is the kingdom in which Jesus is visibly uh, exalted, not just among you know the church where where he is now, but among the nations, among the world, That's among right. people who don't even you know uh, <clears throat> who aren't necessarily believers. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that name gives a nod more to the time as opposed to more as as opposed to less. <laughs> of a nod to what it's actually who it's actually about. Yes. It's not about yeah. it's a thousand years. It's about Jesus reigning. And the Messianic kingdom is talked about through the Old Testament, but mm. never referred to as a millennium because that information is not revealed until the third last to last mm. chapter of mm. the Bible. Mm. Yeah. Um uh okay, so anyways, the here's here's what the debate as such is about. Um, Revelation 20 mentions a period of a thousand years, and of course we know a thousand means is the same as a millennium. Um, during which certain things will happen. Uh, chief among them is Satan is bound and unable to deceive the nations at all during that time. Um, also at the beginning of that a thousand year period, um, people who have been martyred are resurrected to reign. Uh, and at the end of that time, um, Satan is released to uh, gather armies to go and attack um, <clears throat> the city of God. So, uh, that in essence is the millennial kingdom, the one that has those characteristics. But the thing is, no matter what view of that period you take, you're going to lump other events into that same period. Essentially what you are talking about is the messianic kingdom. Mm. So whatever view you take on it, it's the kingdom during which Jesus has 
um, mm-hmm. this this supremacy. So there are three views um, of this this kingdom's nature and timing, and they all have prefixes which have to do with with time. So mm-hmm. premillennialism is the view that we're going to be advocating for, and that is the belief that Jesus will come back before the millennium. That's where the pre comes from, is Jesus will come back before this kingdom to set it up, and then he will reign on this same earth for a thousand years before bringing about the eternal state. Um, Then there's postmillennialism, which is Jesus comes back after this a thousand year period, which by the way, uh, many postmillennialists do not believe that it's an actual thousand years. They um, take the number as symbolically just referring to a long period of time. Um, the dis- the chief distinctive of postmillennialism, besides the timing, um, is that uh, the church is going to be the the visible kingdom on earth, and that Christianity is going to increase um, to the point where by the time Jesus comes back, pretty much everybody is Christian. Like a huge revival, a pinnacle. Yes, revival. but but prolonged so that that you, there are different places that, that post-millennials place the beginning of this kingdom. Some place it at Jesus' resurrection and say it's going on now. Others say mm-hmm. it will start once the church really gets predominance in the world. Mm-hmm. But all of them do believe that there will be a significant period of time in which most people in the world are Christian. I heard a post-millennialist once say that uh, he believes we're still in the early church. And so that's like how far this goes like they believe we're in the like this we're in the stages basically it's like i've seen post-millennialism is about as close to hyper preterism as you can get while still being orthodox yeah yeah so but there there is there is differentiation among them but they all have to believe that by definition that uh jesus will come back after the kingdom and also that the church is really what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom, and it will and it will be covering the, most of the world. Um, now, amillennialism believes the same thing about the timing of the kingdom as postmillennialism does. Uh, so they don't believe it's an actual thousand years. In fact, they can't at this point <laughs> because Jesus has been more than a thousand years in the coming. Um, so they they believe uh, generally that the kingdom started at Jesus' first coming. Um, and that mm-hmm. it will continue until his second coming. So the, let me explain about the name A, amillennialism. The prefix A refer, means without, as in atheism, or like without God, um, or amorphous, without shape. Um, so technically, the, the term means without a millennium. Now, amillennialists do not like this name, and I, I get it, because they do believe in a millennium. It's just that um, their millennium is essentially invisible. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's in the church. It's within the hearts of uh, believers, it's not physical. Yeah, and uh, there's there's a divide between different types of amillennialists. Some believe that it's just um, within the hearts of believers. Uh, others believe that it's only among deceased saints in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the big difference between amillennialists and postmillennialists is amillennialists do not believe that the church is going to cover the entire world, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but they still view the church as the kingdom, just as postmillennialists do. They just mm-hmm. It's not a physical kingdom. Mm. Um, so then you mentioned you wanted just a little bit about dispensational premillennialism. Yeah, just like I tip your hat yeah. to it really quick. Yeah. So um, I would actually almost fall more in that camp because I believe many of the same things as dispensational premillennialists do about um, 
about Israel's role in the kingdom. The the two main divisions of premillennialism are uh, historic premillennialism, which was the the almost universal belief in the early church, not mm. fully universal, but almost universal for the first several hundred years of church history, um, and that's that's readily verifiable. And you can look at you know people like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, yeah. Polycarp, all of them were premillennialists. Um, so they believed that Jesus was going to come back and set up an earthly kingdom. Um, the very earliest church fathers, we can't tell uh, quite clearly what they thought about national Israel, that is about ethnic Jews. But later on, um, for sure, by the middle of the the second century, you see the idea that the church is what's being talked about there um, is sort of sort of taking the place of Israel, not necessarily fully like to the extent you would see in replacement theology. You can kind theology. of understand. I mean, yeah. this is post-destruction of Jerusalem. They don't know. The I Jews mean, had anathematized yeah, Christians at the Council of Jamnia. Exactly. In and so you can, you can kind of understand. They're like, okay, well, there's not really an Israel to take this role anymore. What could this mean? Mm-hmm. You know, so, but now... We're living in these days where we do see a national state of Israel. I mean, if I were a Christian living back then, I would have thought there's not going to be distinctively ethnic Jews anymore. Give it a couple hundred years. And especially if you see how hostile they were to Christianity. Yeah. Which, by the way, I will add, Scripture prophesies this in both Testaments. In other words, Mm -hmm. it shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, The Jews will be actively opposed to the gospel until Jesus comes back. Uh, when when they will turn around, there will be a mass conversion like you read about in Romans 11 and so many passages in the Old Testament. Um, and in Jesus even makes a nod to it in Matthew 23. Anyway, um, dispensational premillennialism, they, they firmly believe that national Israel will have a role. But another distinctive, and this is what actually sets me apart, I would say, from being a pure dispensational premillennialist, is they believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, uh, it, I, the jury is a little bit out for me in that one, but I don't see compelling enough um, evidence to convince me that there, there that has to be the case. So I, as it stands now, I'm a post-tribulational, mm. believe in a post-tribulational rapture. Yeah. But that's not really the topic for today. So um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's another podcast. Yeah, which we've uh, <laughs> we've only gotten to appetizers so far. So I guess we better yeah. start the yeah, the course. absolutely. So okay, the. The real now that we're twenty minutes into this thing, the real topic is um, to, your top five reasons for believing in a we're gonna call it a real millennium or like a a literal a physical millennium. earthly kingdom. Yeah. Okay. So hey, messianic kingdom. Yeah. Three, two, right. one. Lift okay. Off. All right. So reason number one is uh, scripture gives an overwhelming precedent for literal fulfillment, mm. which I guess I already right off the bat need to clarify what I mean by literal fulfillment, because there is a, a boatload of misconception about this term. Um, so literal, literal fulfillment is set in contrast to symbolic fulfillment or symbolic reading, literal reading versus symbolic reading. Literal is actually really easy to explain. If I gave you a letter that said, go to the library and get this book. And then when you go past the quick trip, get me a cookie like, you know exactly what I mean. I don't have to explain anything whatsoever. The words mean what they mean. It's very straightforward. A dictionary will tell you exactly what I'm telling you. Um, uh, but with scripture, we need a little bit more of a nuance because people have gotten the idea that literal interpretation or 
literal reading of scripture means that you don't believe there are symbols in scripture. And that is not true. Right. So literal interpretation includes the concept that, yes, there are symbols that are used. Yeah. So let's let's use an example. The parables of Jesus use lots of symbols, right? Mm -hmm. So he's talking about sheep. People are actually not bovines. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but Jesus is using them as symbols of that. But the thing is, the text itself tells us that it's a parable. Yeah. In other words, right. it's like, heads up, this is not about, about agriculture. This is about something else. Um, an even better example is uh, in, in Revelation chapter 17, uh, there's a scene with a woman on a beast. And the chapter is introduced by telling us that John was shown symbols. So we know it's not actually about a creature. Yeah. And not only that, we're told, we're told, you know, the heads represent this. Mm -hmm. uh, the heads of the beast represent this. We're told the woman is a city. In other words, mm -hmm. this is not about a woman. The woman is a, is a symbol for a city. So literal interpretation reads that text and says, okay, this is identified as a symbol. The symbol is explained. And that's the other thing is that scripture very often explains its own symbols. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Daniel, Daniel's another excellent example. Daniel chapter seven, his night vision of the four beasts that the interpreting angel tells Daniel, this is not about beasts. This is not a zoology lesson. The four beasts represent four kingdoms. So literal interpretation is totally fine there because yeah. the text tells us they're symbols. And not only does it tell us that they're symbols, it interprets them for us. So in people who don't read it literally, <clears throat> will even take that when scripture says like, Hey, these are actual kingdoms. They'll say, yeah, but so what are the kingdoms then? Yes. So that is the hallmark of symbolic interpretation. Mm -hmm. Symbolic interpretation at, at, at a fundamental level is not satisfied with scripture's own explanation mm -hmm. of its symbols. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in the instance that you were mentioning, uh, a, a lot of them, th this is not all uh, symbolic interpreters, but many of them with the little horn in Daniel 7, have trouble fitting him as an actual king. Um, so they interpret him as something else or Daniel or sorry, revelation 17. Um, when it says the woman is a city, many interpreters think, well, Babylon's the world system. So they're not satisfied that scripture tells us that it's a city. They have to add another layer of interpretation or a lot of, um, there's a school of uh, interpretation of prophecy called historicism and they think that the woman represents the catholic church mm. well <laughs> the text says she's a city so that like <laughs> symbolic interpretation is like you making know the city the catholic yeah. church <laughs> the, it's a uh, it's it's making oh, symbols Vatican of symbols city. There, a I mean, but um uh and also it gives her name as babylon but they're they're convinced that that has to be rome um, so it's uh, symbolic interpretation is when you, when you don't think that scripture goes far enough with its own interpretation and you add another layer of symbolism, or when you take things that aren't identified as symbols and you make them symbols as well. Mm. So, um, all throughout revelation, you can find people who will say, oh, well, the two witnesses, those can't actually be two witnesses. Um, even though they're doing things that individuals could do and that match very well with the types of things that old Testament prophets did they say well those must be symbolic for something else the text doesn't tell us that they just assume that right. um and, and interestingly enough revelation has a number of places where it says uh 
this is a symbol. So like Revelation 12, the woman and the dragon, we're told the woman is a symbol for something. We're told the dragon is a symbol for Satan. But then in places where it doesn't tell us a symbol, it's, things are a symbol. Symbolic interpreters are, are dead sure that it is. Um, so that's the difference between symbolic and literal interpretation. And as I said at the beginning of this piece right here, um, literal interpretation is is all that you see in Scripture. Uh, exhibit A, Jesus' first coming. Um, he was actually born in the city of Bethlehem like Micah 5.2 tells us he would be. And in Micah chapter 4, there's a mention of even the building where Jesus would be born that was literally fulfilled. The, the Tower of the Flock, Migdola Dare. Um, so those prophecies are not only fulfilled literally, they're fulfilled literally in tremendous detail. So we know he's going to be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah because of Micah 5.2, which by the way, Herod's courtiers rightly used literal interpretation to deduce, deduce where the child would show up. Um, right, right. Uh, and then Jesus literally came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey in fulfillment of, of Zechariah 9. Um, Daniel 9 is is an insanely on the on yeah. point example of of timing being fulfilled literally, where we have and the exact events. and events, the exact countdown to Jesus um, being revealed as the Messiah mm. um, from a historical edict all the way up until Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Artaxerxes, on, right? Yeah, the yeah. Artaxerxes decree, um, uh, and Daniel in particular is is a good test case because Daniel is said to be so-called apocalyptic literature. Um, many, many, many Christians have heard this term thrown around and there's a lot of people in, in Christian academia who are, who routinely label, uh, books in the Bible with this label, which I think is very unfortunate because, uh, in the words of Inigo Montoya on the princess bride, <laughs> I don't think that word means what you think it means. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, so the word apocalyptic, you can just do a, a basic search for this on your, your internet or even an encyclopedia or whatnot. Um, the word apocalyptic literature uh, has been has been used for quite some time now by by secular folk um, with a, a specific bent that this refers to literature um, from a certain period that deals with certain topics, namely um, the end of the world and um, you know the supernatural realm, things like that. It usually has an angelic guide. There are some of these diagnostic features that they have, but what's problematic about this term is um, these books outside of the Bible. There are fundamental differences between them and Scripture, which would lead us to to consider it very unwise to just use that term in a blanket mm. sense. One of the most important things being those those books outside of the Bible that are considered apocalyptic literature are pseudonymous. That is, they claim the name of someone who did not write them. Uh, and they are also just prophecy. Yes, Enoch. Yeah. Like Enoch That's did not them. write the book of Enoch. Yeah. But he didn't know Greek yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, In case you didn't know. <laughs> uh, and so they're pseudonymous. Also, they're just human works of speculation. Mm. Radical difference between that and, and actual prophecy that is being made. The other kicker is... Um, people will say without proving it or demonstrating it, well, apocalyptic literature uses symbolic interpretation. I would invite any of you listeners to read um, some apocalyptic literature online. A lot of it doesn't take super long and it's kind of interesting, a little bit weird, but um, for example, Enoch, the book of Enoch is available for free online. 
there are many portions of that book that don't use symbolic interpretation. In other words, you can use literal interpretation and you'll come to the correct conclusion about what the author is getting at, or even some of the ones that were written in the, the New Testament period, like Shepherd of Hermas and so forth. So it's not a given rule that because something is apocalyptic anyway, that it's symbolic. So that's, that is like the first level of defense a lot of people use to say, well, I, sure, if you read these books in a straightforward manner, of course you'll believe that there's a, a future earthly kingdom. But um, if you look at apocalyptic literature outside of the Bible, it doesn't even play by those rules. But like I said, there's a massive chasm between inspired scripture that's written by the people who, who say that they wrote it right. and this other group of books that's just speculation about the supernatural and about the end of all things. Right. You know, it's almost like new agey junk. I think that's so important because uh, so having taken and I'm not dismissing my my seminary classes I've benefited greatly from them but a lot of times I've been in my seminary classes and they've been talking about like hey this is apocalyptic literature and it's almost as if saying that means you can kind of dismiss what the text is actually saying like yeah. that would never like they would never say that like, like they prefaced it with this is apocalyptic yeah stuff so. like that or and it's actually it's not my professors that i'm saying would do that it's more like the books we read mm-hmm. you know like so if you read um things like dictionary of uh uh jesus and the gospels or really uh of the later new testament and revelation the you'll probably apocalyptic literature quote unquote that's probably going to be one of the most common phrases yep in in that uh, dictionary there so it's just which i'm not saying it's not a helpful uh resource it actually is super helpful but um it that mindset has pervaded even christian scholarship yeah I guess very much so say. and 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 i do think that the word is okay in certain contexts if we clarify what we mean by it which is simply that it talks about supernatural things in more detail and then it gives a picture of the time of the end and that it has angelic guides but nowhere in that salad do we have you, it must be read symbolically. Mm. Like that's mm-hmm. just not there. And frankly, a lot of the uh, the prophecies about Jesus' first coming come in what you would call apocalyptic literature, mm-hmm. like yeah. Zechariah 9 um, or even places in Micah uh, would be considered that. It's um, So that's that's a dangerous thing to do anyway. Uh, and and going back to the, sorry, I have a tendency to wander no, no, uh, no. <laughs> conceptually with many doors to open in this <laughs> chamber. Um, anyway, so the, the original point was scripture sets an overwhelming precedent for literal fulfillment. Um, that's, you, like I said, you, are, you see that in Jesus' first coming. And that, frankly, is what the main reason that we could that the Jews were expected to be able to identify Jesus is because he had this resume that if you read the Old Testament literally, you'd be able to identify him. Um, and it's not even just prophecies about the first coming; it's prophecies in general. So you know, God's talking to um, Abraham in Genesis, and he talks about how many years his descendants would be in slavery um, before they return to the land. Guess what? It's the actual number of years. Um, Joseph's prophecy about how many years of famine would occur and how many years of plenty was fulfilled literally. No one has a second thought about, well, how are, it's kind of a crisis here. Like, how should we interpret this? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could excuse it by saying, well, those are things that have already happened, but so is Jesus' first coming. In other words, the point is all the prophecy that we've seen that's already happened has literal fulfillment. Yeah. So 
it sure looks like that's the way that God does things. And also it's the only way that really makes sense because symbolic fulfillment could show up a whole different kinds of ways. That's why a lot of false religions really cling to to symbolic fulfillment is because they can say their prophecies were fulfilled no matter what. Mm -hmm. So Mormons are very guilty of this, Muslims, same thing. Um, uh, And just all kinds of cults that uh, come across the radar that they they will say, oh, well, I know our leader said this, but Mm. it's a symbolic fulfillment. Yeah. Well, you can have that happen anyway. So God doesn't doesn't play like that. He makes his targets narrow because he can hit them. And Um, sometimes we dog on the the Hebrews for the Israelites for not seeing Jesus for who he was mm-hmm. when we're, we're like, you can clearly see scripture says that he is, he's fulfilling scripture. But when we consider revelation or any of the second coming of oh, Jesus, man. you know what yep. I mean? We're like, That's convicting, oh, you know what I mean? Like we're dogging them for that. But at the same time, we're, we're doing we're, the same thing. We're doing the same exact thing they're doing. Yep. Oh man. That's, I'd never thought about that. And there's a, an adage, I, th- I think this came out of somebody that, that works for Jews for Jesus. I may be misattributing this, so I hope whoever the person is that they feel appreciated. Um, the quote is something like this. If you, if you um, spiritualize you know, lots of prophecies about Jesus' second coming, how can you be upset with a Jew who wants to spiritualize things about the first? Mm, mm-hmm. That's right. so good. Mm. Um, and this is, the, the, honestly, this was the point that convinced me. Looking at all the prophecies of Christ's first coming, I could not find one of them that was strictly symbolic. All of them could had at least a literal sense to them. And it was, honestly, that's, that was like, why would I expect the second coming to be any different? Yeah. And it's why it's so powerful that we, we can, there's no question about the fact that he's the Messiah, born of a virgin. He will heal the eyes of the blind. Like all this stuff, uh, his hands and feet will be pierced. His clothing will be divided by lots. Like it's a joke in yeah. the sense that, that it's, it's so clear that it's, yeah. that it's um, literal fulfillment that's being used. Um, and really the debate is not about whether if you read scripture literally, whether it points to a future earthly millennial kingdom. I've not, I've not seen anybody argue that. Um, they just say, well, it shouldn't be read literally. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, we for, could for sure say a lot more about this first point, but I guess we better scoot along yeah, to point number two. <laughs> yeah. Point number two. <clears throat> yeah, so point number two is... As he's unlocking his iPhone. Yeah, I'm not very technologically adept. I just read about eschatology all the time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and just Genesis. Kidding. Yeah, in Genesis. And lately, a Swedish grammar. Um, oh, right. Jesus will not sit on the throne of David till his second coming. Now, this first, one's controversial. Yeah, this one is controversial, but we are going to uncontroversify it, hopefully, right now. <laughs> um, so this point, uh, especially for people who haven't haven't really looked into this particular matter before, may seem like, what what is David's throne? How is that directly related to this? All right. Um, so... <clears throat> There are a number of, of texts that prophesy the Messiah will reign righteously on David's throne. Well, if you are of the opinion that the millennium began at Jesus' first coming or that it's going to transpire before his second coming, you have to believe that Jesus is going to sit or is already sitting on David's throne. Um, it is unique to premillennialism to believe that Jesus will sit on David's throne after he comes back. 
Um, but when we look at the texts about this particular issue from the Old and the New Testament, um, we see that Jesus will not sit on the throne of David until the second coming. Uh, so let's get into a little more specifics about this. Um, thrones. So the throne of God, I think people kind of follow that intuitively, but there's, there are actual particular texts about it that, that touch on the fact that God's throne is eternal. Um, mm. In other words, it, it didn't start at some point in human history. God has always had that throne and mm. he's always sat alone on it and it's undefiled. So Psalm 93 verse 2 um, <clears throat> talks about that fact. Mm-hmm. So that already has a characteristic that, is, that it, we're going to see is incompatible with, with David's throne. If you look at Jeremiah 22 verse 2, and if Colin, you can pop that up and read it. I was neglectful and forgot my English Bible at home today. (laughs) Jeremiah 22, verse 2, you said? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, pulling up Logos here. Jeremiah 22, verse 2. All right. That was my alarm. I think your alarm has gone off every single episode. Yeah, it's gone off. Okay. Okay, Jeremiah 22, verse 2. You are to say, Hear the word of the Lord, King of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David. You, your officers, and your people who enter these gates. Okay, and what follows is diatribe. It's very unpleasant things that God has to say to this personage, which I think is Jehoiakim in that passage. I'm not okay. sure about that. But um, <clears throat> anyway, this is clearly not God's eternal throne. The throne of David is an earthly throne. The person who's sitting on it is a wicked king who goes without saying he's not sitting on God's eternal throne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All that to say... There, there is a distinction between the throne of God, the Father, and the throne of David. Now, uh, in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Gabriel tells Mary, I think it's him talking to Mary, it might be Zechariah, I think it's Mary though, um, that, uh, that, the, that Jesus will sit on the throne of his father, David. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he has the right to that particular throne, which we've already seen cannot be the same as the throne of God the Father. Um, now, we also see a distinction that Jesus himself makes between his throne and the Father's throne in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. He says, to him whoever comes, I will give the right to sit on my throne as I overcame and sat down on my Father's throne. So Jesus himself makes a wedge between his throne and the father's throne um, uh, in that verse. Yeah. Well, that's that's explicit right there. Yeah. And Jesus throne, as we saw in Luke chapter one, the one that he has the right to is the throne of David. Um, If you look at like Psalm 110, come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Whereas Jesus sitting right now, we can look at a number of new Testament passages to see this, but he's sitting at the right hand of the father. Um, was there something in is that is that come out in the Davidic covenant of God's promise to David that like yes so those key those key passages okay um, and many of the the messianic passages yeah. uh, talk about him sitting on the throne of David yeah. and reigning over the house of Israel now the, there's another place where Jesus himself actually multiple places several where Jesus affirms that he will not sit on his his throne until his return. So Matthew 19, verse 28, um, and Matthew 25, verse 31 are both explicit in that regard. 
as Jesus says, at the regeneration, or the, in Greek, palygenesia, of mm. all things, when the Son of Man sits on his throne. Oh, so he places man. him sitting on his throne at his second coming. Well, we know his throne is the throne of David and that it's different from the Father's throne. So there's, there's no wiggle room there. Um, Jesus is not going to sit on his throne until he comes back and his throne is the throne of David. That's not to say Jesus isn't sovereign Correct. or like Jesus isn't king or something like right. that. It's it's to say that there's a uh, there is a, a coming a actual earthly kingdom yeah. that isn't here yet. Yes. But will be here soon and Jesus is going to be the king over that one. Over and I think kingdom. it's important at this point to clarify too. There's a lot of um from what I've seen in reading different materials from amillennialists and postmillennialists, they believe that premillennialism downgrades Christ's sovereignty. Mm. And I think it's quite the opposite that the other views do that. Um, there's probably too much in that, that uh, topic for us to, to actually get into all of it tonight. But just to briefly point out, um, Jesus has always been 100% sovereign even before his incarnation. He's always been king even before his incarnation. Um, and so uh, if we start thinking about it as Jesus only became a king when he was born, that's mistaken. What we're looking at is when is Jesus going to be recognized mm. as king? And for the amillennialist, the vast majority of people in the world don't know that he's king. I might, um, I might be making, I might be reading into the text here, but ever since I've learned of that, like what mm-hmm. you told me, I, I, I can't stop thinking about, uh, the fact that David was anointed and declared as King and heir before he actually took his throne. Indeed. And he was, oh. um, yeah. And he was, okay. um, actually in exile because Saul was hunting him down. Yep. And he was reigning over people who chose to follow him before he became the recognized king of Israel. And I just can't help but think, but maybe there's some typology there. I think there for sure is. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, and Jesus even embodies that in his parallel, uh, his parable in Luke 19. It says, um, these, these, buffoons i'm paraphrasing this yeah. is like the message thanks eugene peterson um uh that uh, these buffoons did not want him to be king how but it talks about him going to a distant country however he was made king anyway and returned mm. Mm. oof yeah so and by the way that parable also ex- explicitly teaches a delay before the kingdom the the setup for it is jesus told them p- this parable because they thought the kingdom was going to appear right away. Mm-hmm. In other words, Jesus is concerned that they believe the kingdom is going to show up right now, which is what amillennialists believe that it showed up at Jesus' first coming, and many postmillennialists do as well. Mm-hmm. Jesus told a parable specifically to nip that in the bud. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So the throne of the whole idea between behind Jesus reigning sovereignly is like what G- Colin was talking about with David, is that David was king from the time that Samuel anointed him, really, by right. Um, but he was not recognized as king mm-hmm. until he was sitting in over all the tribes until he was sitting in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is king over the entire world now. He can do with it what he wants. But the vast majority of people do not recognize him as king. But these passages about the Davidic king talk about everyone knowing that he's king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So that's that's the the kicker here is that um, the the threat Jesus himself says he's not going to sit on his throne until his second coming. And so if you if you take out a future earthly millennium after Jesus return, then you don't have a chance for Jesus to to sit on his throne and be rightly honored on this earth. So Jesus was maligned and rejected um, and persecuted and suffered on this earth for an extended period of time. Uh, premillennialism is the only view that shows him exalted and venerated um, and blessed on this earth for an extended period of time. Mm. Yeah. That's so good, man. That's point number two. Point number three. Oh, this one's a little bit complicated so you might want to go into dig into your philosophical basket and get some some cookies because uh philosophy cookies cookies. this personally this third reason i think is the most compelling but it might be the hardest to to wrap our minds around so i'm going to put it this way premillennialism is the only view that's a terrible word (laughs) premillennialism Is the only word, it's like the English word sixths, like four consonants in a row. Who does that? Um, uh, premillennialism is the only view in which God does not equivocate and which can be rightly used with the test of a prophet. Okay, so the word equivocation is central to what we're talking about here. The word equivocate refers to when you tell somebody something, but you intentionally are ambiguous about the way that you use language. And you know that the person is going to understand what you said in mode A, but you actually mean mode B. Uh, if the, For those of you that are into the original Star Wars trilogy, which as far as I'm concerned is the only trilogy, um, <laughs> uh, uh, there's a very famous example of equivocation. And uh, the first one, Obi-Wan Kenobi tells Luke Skywalker that Darth Vader betrayed and murdered your father. And then in Return of the Jedi, well, actually, I mean, in Empire Strikes Back, Luke finds out something a little different. And in Return of the Jedi, Obi-Wan Kenobi explains himself and says, well, what I said was true from a certain point of view. Uh Um, You know, when 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 your father became Darth Vader, the good man that was Anakin Skywalker died. So that's a that's a perfect yeah. example of equivocation. Obi-Wan knew exactly how Luke would understand what he said in the first one. So he was using the word died in an equivocal way. Um, <clears throat> here's the issue is I don't think not only do I not think that God per, not only do I not personally not think that God equivocates, I think it is a massive issue for us if Yahweh does equivocate. Mm-hmm. Because how do we know when he's equivocating and when he's not? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think God gives us a, a a very clear demonstration of how he uses language in scripture right from the beginning. Uh, look at Genesis chapter one, verse three. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Mm-hmm. Though there's no equivocation. Like what yeah. God said is what comes to be. Later on, when God tells people don't do X, if people do X, literally speaking, then God is upset about it. If God equivocated and he meant something else by don't do X, and then he was mad about it, that would be tragic for us. Um, uh, the other thing is like all the doctrines that we hold most dear about salvation and so forth. If um, God means to fulfill the promises in a radically different way, in an unexpected way, which by the way is terms that are routinely used by 
amillennialists and postmillennialists about the kingdom, mm. then how do we know that he's not equivocating in the New Testament or when he's talking about salvation? Mm-hmm. That's not just a, like a philosophical gotcha. That's a real problem. Yeah. If this is part of God's character, if this is something that he does is say one thing and mean something quite different, then, then why give we're in script- trouble. Why give a scripture? So how does that relate to the test of a prophet? So the test of a prophet is found in Deuteronomy 18. And in my opinion, this is one of the most critical um, texts of scripture, especially for epistemology, which epistemology refers to the question of how do you know what you know? So um, the occasion for the test of the prophet is Moses is explaining to the people how they can tell a true prophet from a false prophet. Very important to do because you need to know, is this God speaking or is this some Yehu that's making stuff up? Now, I'll, I'll go ahead and read that passage yeah, do really that. fast. <clears throat> it's Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and uh, 22. It says, You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? So, Which, let that question sink. That's, that's a crazy important question. That's a really good mm-hmm. question, to yeah. be honest with you. That is like the it's, question of what, it's very what's relevant the Bible. nowadays, yeah. too. So, Extremely relevant. Yeah. Very relevant. Um. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the, in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that's, that is, that is vital for the, certainly for the Jews who are recording the words of God to know when it's him speaking, when it's a false prophet. And it's a, it's a very simple test. Um, but only if we use literal fulfillment, which I'll explain right. that in a second. But the, the brilliance of it is it's one and done. So if you are a prophet and you say such and such is going to happen and it doesn't happen, even if you're wrong once it's game over, they can yeah. kill you actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And God takes it seriously enough that you are to kill someone who plays that game. Yeah. It's prophets roulette. So, there are lots of people that are held up um, today as well. Like so, so and so's prophecy came true. Well, a lot of times these people are making very vague prophecies, yeah, yeah. which is very different from God saying, "Hey, it's going to be in this exact town. Um, it will happen at this exact time." Mm-hmm. God makes His targets very narrow on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, demons um, are, which are a source of a lot of false prophecies, they are very interested in, in leading people astray in that regard. They shoot for wide targets because they're a lot easier to make, but they still, God says one and done. So even these false prophets um, are eventually going to miss. And if that's the case, then you know, this person is not a valid prophet. Also, we're not, that this is old covenant. We're not saying that you should come up to your friend who claims to have the gift of prophecy (laughs) and made a wrong prophecy and just like, Take out your AR-14 and the yeah. words of Joe Biden. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. I mean, not to make fun of Joe Biden. It was just a funny, but funny to make fun slur. of Joe Biden. But to make fun yes. of Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> okay, know, but I so it's completely that was so off track. I there I heard a little while back when the whole Trump impeachment thing was going through. You know, the Republicans hold the Senate and the yeah. Democrats hold the House. The House. There was a particular. A teacher who says he's a prophet who said um, he made a prophecy and said Trump won't get impeached. It was a very, very safe prophecy. Yep. Yeah. Because you can see what's happening. He, he's not going to get impeached. The Republicans hold the, the Senate. But he makes this one 
prophecy yeah. and it comes true and all of a sudden he's gonna ride that forever yep. yeah 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 see i got that right like of course yeah. he didn't get but it's very safe <laughs> and if we were to look at his his full roster i bet he fumbles at some point mm-hmm. um yeah. and so he would fail the test of a prophet and that mm-hmm. means you can check out all he says mm-hmm. yep um uh so here here's the issue with um the test of a prophet and equivocation and so forth with god is if you read uh, particularly the Old Testament, we'll see, as we'll see in the next point, if we have time for it, um, even the New Testament, there are such clear statements about things that are going to happen that can only work if you have a future earthly millennial kingdom. In other words, there are conditions that are incompatible with our present age, but also incompatible with the eternal state. And as I said a while ago, the argument has never been um, about whether when read literally or straightforwardly, the scriptures teach a future earthly millennium. That's, that's not up for discussion. It hasn't been. Um, and so when people are using symbolic fulfillment, if they believe, let's say amillennialism, but postmillennialism is in the same boat here. Um, if they believe that there is no period in which Israel is going to be reestablished in the land of Canaan, and um, have the Messiah reigning among them righteously and where the nations are going to come to Jerusalem and bow down before the king. And we're not talking about the new Jerusalem here because in Zechariah 14, we read there's still a possibility of people deciding not to do that and being punished for it. That's That doesn't work in the eternal state. No, people are... So either, there's like a period of grace there. <clears throat> yeah, the well, so there's the, the nations, they can choose not to go, but it says if they don't, they won't have any reign. Yeah. So... Um, so, I mean, that passage is, is crystal clear. To interpret Zechariah 14, for instance, in the context of amillennialism or postmillennialism, you have to use barrels and barrels of symbolic interpretation because you, they, they don't believe that there's going to be a reestablishment of Israel in the land or that, they, that Jesus is going to reign visibly where all the nations are going to stream to worship him physically. Um, and so... Symbolic fulfillment, as we've already discussed, you can really make it whatever you want. Mm. So uh, oftentimes the wand that comes out is we just turn anything about Israel into the church. Mm-hmm. We just turn anything about Jerusalem into the church, or we turn anything about Israel into just that was actually just fulfilled in Christ because he's the true Israel. Um, so the problem is that the way that the word Israel is used, God would know that people are going to take it to refer to national national ethnic Israel. And so if he's being equivocal the whole time and he's like, I know they're going to take it this way, but I actually just mean the church. Um, how do we know that he's not equivocating in the New Testament? How do we know that the church is not an equivocal term as well? It's not a regression that you want to start. Right. Um, <clears throat> even when people are like, oh, but the fullness of times, how do you know he's, he's not being equivocal there? If he's the sort of God that uses language in that way, how do we know when he's using that way and when he's not? It makes me wonder what the benefit of interpreting scripture symbolically so much like that. Like it doesn't it doesn't make it easier because you have to do so much legwork on the other mm. end of saying this is this might this might be this and this might be this and as opposed to reading it literally where you just say okay this is what it says it is. It is it is harder in one sense but very much easier in another mm. because you can take anything positive and say that's about the church 
Um, uh, and okay. that's like, for example, I there's a school of thought called idealism that with the, the term as used with prophecy. And if you look at an idealist commentary on Revelation, anything good is just the church. Mm. Um, and oftentimes uh, for preterists, anything bad is the Jews. Uh, sometimes the nations are Rome. But you just kind of have your go-to points. Or you can go in the Old Testament and anything that talks good about Israel, just say that was fulfilled in Christ spiritually. You don't even have to elaborate. But the part that is harder is if you try to talk about it in detail. Uh, say Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, I have tried for years to find a halfway decent attempt by by an amillennialist or a postmillennialist to really go into detail with that passage, and it just doesn't exist because for them there's not really much point. All those dimensions of the temple, chapters and chapters of instructions, they really just are symbolic for you know Christ or the church. And what like one way I think about it, and I'm not when I say this, I'm not accusing someone who does take the amillennial or postmillennial position of just trying to like get out of it. Yeah. Um, but this is, this is one thing that makes it understandable is that it's much easier to paint a painting than to sculpt a sculpture. Scripture presents a very three dimensional way of seeing like how God fulfills his promises and they're very real. They're Mm -hmm. very earthy. Um, and I think that a lot of times amillennialism or postmillennialism will flatten those features out into a two-dimensional picture and that's when a lot of equivocation happens Mm -hmm. because you can't see like you're not allowing scripture to paint a three-dimensional image of what like a a very you know three axis (laughs) like actual time like um uh fulfillment of those promises so and of course i i want to make it clear for me personally, I've read a lot of amillennialist and postmillennialist material. So I, I do have a good idea of why people believe those things. Um, although the purpose of this broadcast is not to give reasons for those. Cause I mean, I don't yeah. think they're true, but um, just be aware that I think uh, it, it makes sense. If you're looking at particular things, why they would believe that I still don't think it's correct. And I think there's more information that needs to be brought into the discussion. And that's when you see it's, it's not defensible. Um, to hold those views, but uh, certainly, like, let, I'll just give one example. Um, a lot of people think the book of Hebrews prohibits the idea of there ever being any future animal sacrifices. So because premillennialism looks at Ezekiel 40 through 48 and says, look, there's there are going to be animal sacrifices, a lot of people um, almost intuitively reject that because they feel like that's a step backward. Mm. Now, the issue is a lot more complex than that because it's not as simple as, oh, we're going back to the Mosaic Code. In fact, if you look closely at Ezekiel 40 through 48, you'll see it's not a return to the Mosaic Code. It's something different, but it does have animal sacrifices. And there's a, there's a, I would say, an almost unexpected purpose for them that is beyond um, beyond what people would generally think. But uh, anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent. I was just saying... <laughs> That's I, another time. Yes. <laughs> I was just saying that there there are reasons why I think people do gravitate to those viewpoints, but I think it's very damaging to do because you end up making God equivocate on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. There are chapters, like I said, 81 chapters are affected by this issue of the millennium in Israel. And um, you end up reading those in a radically different way that does not have any close correspondence with the actual words Mm. of the text. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. And the thing is, you have to be consistent one way or the other. If, if if he's equivocating here, it has to be here and here, like 
you you don't know. It's yeah. a slippery slope. But if you're going to interpret literally, you have to keep you have to be consistent with it. You can't yeah. pick and choose. Yeah. Well, and it makes sense because that's the way that God communicates. And right. if you read it that way, it, it pans out. Uh, it reminds me of Martin Luther's comment on Zechariah 14 because he was writing, a, I believe, a commentary on the text. And he made the comment when he got to Zechariah 14, he said, Here I stop, for I know not with what the prophet treats. If you read the text straightforwardly, it's not hard to understand. But if you are convinced, as as Luther was, of amillennialism, then the text is, what do you do with it? That's Same thing with Ezekiel 40 through 48. What do you do with that? That's you just don't talk about it for the most part. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and also the, the test of a prophet. So if it's we're looking at symbolic fulfillment, then um, it makes it much harder for us to say, yep, God fulfilled that promise because the target has now become very nebulous. The whole reason that God's fulfillment of prophecy is is spectacular and that it sets Christianity apart from all other belief systems is because God has incredibly small targets and he hits them with incredible precision. That only works if you have a clear target. And not just once or twice. He set yeah. a pattern for that yeah. in the Bible. Over yeah. it. He's you know, he's throwing darts, boom, 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 hitting every single one of these things, but they're all literal small dartboards. Mm-hmm. But if you make symbolic fuzzy dartboards, then how do you play that game? Um, the wall is my dartboard. Yeah. <laughs> the whole wall. <laughs> Hey guys, Joshua here. Just wanted to pop in and let you know that this is a two-part episode. So the last two reasons that Jeremy gives will be on part two. Our recording session ran a little long, so we decided to split it up. So be sure to uh, check out the second part to this, uh, which we have released as well. So thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it.